are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. about ready to get started we're on page 414 of the first volume and so we are in the final six pages of the book believe it or not Mm -hmm. and so next week we'll uh, likely need the second volume so remember to have that with you so we're starting number hypothesis 48 this evening again on page 414 for those who just joined and uh, we've been talking a lot about humility over these past months, it seems, and uh, and we're, we continue to do so. And uh, tonight's first hypothesis begins with how does that what we respond to the praise of others uh, when it's directed towards us? And uh, we'll be looking at this theme a good bit throughout the evening, as well as things like simplicity, frugality uh, in one's life as well. And uh, so some interesting topics to close out this first volume. And so again, for those who are just joining, we're on page 414. Letter A from the Gerontcon. A brother visited Abba Serapion. The elder invited him to offer a prayer according to custom, but he did not obey, calling himself a sinner and unworthy of the monastic schema. The elder also wanted to wash his feet, but the brother did not consent to it, using the same words. That is, I'm a sinner and unworthy of the monastic schema. The elder then set the table and proposed that they sit down to eat. He sat down with the elder and began to eat with him. During the meal, the elder admonished him and said, My son, if you want to be edified, stay patiently in your cell and pay attention to yourself and to your handiwork. For going out and visiting others does not profit you as much as staying in your cell. When the brother heard the elder saying these things, he was chagrined, and the expression on his face altered so much that the elder could not fail to notice it. Therefore, Abba Serapion said to him, Up to now you have been saying, I am a sinner, censuring yourself and judging yourself unworthy even to live. And yet when I counseled you lovingly, you became angry as a wild beast. If you want to be humble, then learn to accept courageously whatever others say to you. And do not just speak fine words that have no content. On hearing this, the brother made a prostration to the elder and went away greatly edified. So interesting, uh, what uh, stands revealed here is the, the monk's 
uh, nature of the monk's humility that he uh, protests anytime that the elder wants to show him any kind of, of honor and repeats in a vigorous way how unworthy he is of the, the monastic life as a whole. But the moment that the elder speaks some word of counsel to him, uh, one which we know is pretty consistent among the fathers, uh, if you uh, want uh, uh, to be edified, stay patiently in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Not to go about wandering, but to, to stay in the silence, in the solitude. And so it's not as though he offers him something that was not clearly taught, but it may have struck a chord with him. Perhaps he was one who did wander in some, uh, in some measure, or perhaps he simply saw himself as being the focal point of critique uh, from the counsel that was being given. And this was enough, the elder tells him, to turn him into a wild beast that inside uh, he was raging uh, because of the counsel. He, that he, so much did he take it as a critique. And so he, the elder uses this then as a, a means of, of, of teaching him, you know, not simply to put on the air of humility or act humble uh, before others if it is not the true measure of one's heart that uh, his protest uh, seemingly arising from humility, not to receive the honor bestowed upon him by the, the elder, uh, is not matched by his, his willingness uh, to receive then uh, a, a correction or a critique. And uh, this will be, as we go through this, sort of a common theme here, uh, to make sure that our actions, our words match what is really within, within our hearts. And so one has to be able to receive uh, both praise and critique graciously or to receive them in such a way that one is not unduly moved by them in one direction or another, that one doesn't seize hold of praise in such a way that it's simply feeding one's self-esteem or ego, and that one does not become angry as if you've taken a severe blow to the ego by critique or by counsel. And so it's good advice. So we, we, we often can have uh, a kind of sensitivity, but not in a good way. Uh, you know, there are those sensitive souls that have really refined consciences and are very attentive to the needs of others and how they speak to others. Uh, but we can be, our, our sensitivity can be a touchiness in the sense that if somebody says something to us that is disagreeable, we can become like this monk. We can begin to rage within our hearts like a, like a wild beast. And, uh, and so when we're put to the test, and which we should always be doing for ourselves, but when we're put to the test, it often reveals very quickly where our hearts stand. Okay. Letter B from St. Barsanufius. 
A brother asked an elder, what should one do if he wishes to quiet the reputation that he's acquired, lest he be harmed by what is said about him? For as the father said, woe to him whose name is greater than his deeds. So it's a good question. You know, how does one guard oneself from a growing reputation of either wisdom or holiness that uh, we know at times that people can elevate others. Uh, there can be a, almost a kind of idolatry that begins to emerge uh, because a person is particularly charismatic or has a wisdom in a particular area. And so the question's a good one. You know, how do I respond to this knowing that, you know, it's easy to be evaluated by others in a way that is greater really than what one's deeds warrant and or what is within one's heart? And so the elder replies to him, having a name or a reputation greater than one's accomplishments does a man no harm at all as long as he feels no gratification from words of praise and does not agree with what is said about him, just as one who is slandered as a murderer is not accounted guilty in the sight of God, as long as he has not committed such a murder. A man who is praised should reflect thus, men have held me in esteem, but only because they do not know what I am. So, we know, at least in part, what we truly are. You know, the thoughts that go through our mind, how easily we are moved to anger and frustration with others, or how lazy or negligent we can be about the simplest things within the spiritual life and our relationship with God, or how unkind at times we can be. And so, you know, if we receive false praise or praise from others that is beyond what we warrant, uh, we do not, again, cling to it or take hold of it. Uh, if anything, it should be like a little lash to move us forward, to make us run the, the race more swiftly, as it were. Uh, but if we're criticized, then uh, we should simply be able to receive it, again, without being unduly moved by it, knowing, again, what, what is really within our hearts, that we've received an abundance of God's mercy over and over again for so many things that remain hidden to the eyes of others, and sometimes even hidden from ourselves, that, you know, we've long forgotten things that we've done or thought or said, or that we just are not aware of them. Anything about this hypothesis in particular? A lot of food for thought in just two paragraphs. Praise is an interesting thing, because I don't know if you remember Mother Teresa was often praised by others and directly to her. And... Uh, and she, you don't see her respond like in a harsh way, shrinking back from it, nor do, at least from if memory serves, do you see her uh, being moved in the other direction, you know, taking hold of it. I think she had a clear view of herself. Uh, and, uh, and so 
was not going to be overly moved by by such words. She's simply doing, and I think our our response should be, uh, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we are commanded to do. And so undoubtedly, that's how she saw her care of the poor. Okay, should we move on to the next hypothesis? Okay. Number 49, concerning one who should use, or how one should use clothing and how the father's love frugality. And so this is from the life of St. John the Merciful. Who could adequately recount the frugal lifestyle of John the Patriarch, the poverty of his clothing and the modesty of his bedding? For along with his other virtues, he did not neglect this one either, to the end that he was no better off in these respects than the masses of insignificant men. Once a certain resident of the city, an acquaintance of his, on learning what sort of state he was in, purchased a fur coat worthy of 36 nomus, nomus mada, uh, was a pure gold, which is a pure cold coin weighing about 4.5 grams and a basic unit in the Byzantine monetary system, and sent it to the blessed patriarch with the fervent plea that he not reject this gift, but wear it. <laughs> so an interesting gift uh, to give a patriarch, uh, a fur coat, and uh, uh, certainly not quite suitable, uh, but nonetheless, he was persistent. The Holy Patriarch agreed to do this favor, both on account of the trustworthiness of the man who made this request of him, because the man pleaded fervently and insistently. Now, when those who were close to him learned of this and subsequently related it, he did not cease to disparage himself night and day. Who would not accuse me, the humble John, he kept saying, when I am clad in a garment worthy, worth 36 nomismata, while my brothers in Christ are freezing from cold and suffering hardship in the open air, and when they cannot procure even a small cheap rag, the majority of them go to bed, alas, with empty stomachs, longing like the pauper Lazarus to feed off the crumbs that fall from my table. So initially the, the patriarch agrees because of the insistence uh, of the individual. But, you know, clearly his conscience begins to rebuke him. How am I to do this when all of those around me uh, cannot even afford the, the cheapest rag to protect themselves from the cold at night? Oh my, how many strangers and sojourners arrive in this city, not having anywhere to lay their heads, hungry and thirsty, they lay outstretched in the middle of the marketplace, while I receive goods of every kind. And aside from the other comforts that I enjoy, I am now clad in this costly garment. What, therefore, can I expect to hear on that day of the second coming? What other than thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and the poor, and the poor evil things? but now they are comforted and thou art tormented. But blessed be the Lord, humble John will no longer be covered with this expensive garment, but the poor will be clothed through its monetary value. 
So what begins to go through his head is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, the rich man who did not notice the, you know, the, the great poverty of the one who laid his gate day after day. At daybreak, he sent the coat to be sold in the market. When the donor saw it, he purchased it again and took it to the patriarch, John. The patriarch accepted it, but immediately sent it back to be sold in the market. When this happened twice and many more times, the great John declared to the one who offered it, let us see which of us two will tire first, I who sell it or you who buy it and offer it back. For this man was from among the very wealthy and it was for this reason that the great John deliberately said these things since he wanted to take the money from the man and divert it to the poor. So, it's a, a curious little story here that, uh, you know, he ends up using it, you know, certainly as a test for himself. And really the scriptures uh, do that for him and speak to his heart in the fact, in the face of receiving such an extravagant gift. But uh, his response was to give it away and to give the proceeds of it to the poor. And, uh, and so it ends in this kind of amusing back and forth between the wealthy individual and the patriarch, uh, but all going to the poor, uh, which is the, I think the, the probably the deepest and most important message of it. Uh, but John nonetheless found a way uh, to receive something graciously uh, and, and yet not cling to it. A couple of comments here. First from Anthony. The island had a scene regarding the abbot having a coat which he was too fond of which he was too fond. He was eventually glad to be freed of that attachment by the crazy monk. Yes, this we this movie came up in one of the previous groups called Ostrov or the Island. This extraordinary uh, movie. And uh, but the holy monk of of the monasteries you know sort of is this kind of holy fool and uh and you know he never does things correctly in chapel and doesn't change his socks and or and his hands are always dirty and things like that so you know after trying to correct him the abbot eventually goes to stay with him and his job is to shovel the coal into the furnace to keep the the uh the uh to, to keep the monastery warm. And, uh, but one of the great scenes is when the abbot stays in here and he locks him in to this furnace room with him. And he brings that, because the abbot had brought with him this, you know, fancy blanket that he lays down on top of the coal. <laughs> and he's also wearing these like really nice boots, these leather boots that the patriarch had made for him uh, because his feet were so bad. And uh, and so the you know the monks sort of sees the demons you know surrounding him you know with his clinging to these 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 things these goods uh, as a monk and he turns up the furnace full blast and the place fills with smoke and the the abbot thinks that he's going to die because he's locked in here with that this crazy monk and. Uh, 
And then once they get outside, you know, you know, he's asked why he did this because he's, you know, trying to drive out the demons and he destroys, he cuts up the boots and, you know, he throws this blanket into the, into the water, the icy water. So destroying both. And it was only at the end of this that he could see sort of what St. John the Merciful saw here, that there was an extravagance, especially for a monk who had stepped away uh, from attachments, that how much he was clinging to them. And uh, from our perspective, and when you watch the movie, if you haven't seen it already, it might seem like a small thing. But the abbot himself comes to see the depth of, of his attachment to them. And I think also at that moment begins to see the depth of the sanctity of this holy foal within the monastery, that he was actually the holiest of all of them, despite seeming crazy in their eyes. And the movie sort of plays this out in a deeper way. Uh, but, you know, often it, it's a hard thing for us because, you know, avarice in particular, uh, it, it's never satiated. The, the more that we feed it, the more that it desires. And so when we receive something nice or when we surround ourselves with so many nice things, we often will begin to develop this attachment where we feel that we need to have more to make us happy. And in the end, it becomes something that's oppressive to us, even if on some level we don't realize it fully. And I think in the movie, there was something that opened uh, this monk's, this abbot's eyes fully, and it was being brought close to death or fearing that he was going to die. And I think, uh, you know, for us, sometimes it is something along those lines, loss in some way or this kind of clarity that comes to us again about the brevity of life that can begin to free us from that attachment where we seek to uh you know divest ourselves and it's a curious thing there's a sister that i used to work with a religious sister who said that we spend the first part of our life gathering things and the second part of our life slowly trying to rid ourselves of them and shut ourselves of them and there's some truth to that you know you talk to people when they reach a certain age where they talk about downsizing uh, not only in terms you know of being able to live in their homes but i think there's this sense that there's a kind of clutter that has filled their life uh, that is uh, suffocating and uh, so this isn't something you know, certainly we talk about enough within the church itself that, uh, that, that it's talked about in seminary or that we talk about amongst ourselves because, you know, we live in a very comfortable culture, even when we live a relatively simple life. Suzanne writes, over the course of my life, I've pretty much ruined every single thing I've ever put in put my hand to because I simply cannot act except in order to draw praise from my performance. I'm aware of it, ashamed of it, but I cannot put this passion to death. I don't think I've ever employed a talent or ability with a pure intention. Uh, you know, I think as with so many of the things that we've talked about, 
the, the fathers describe it as a habit of soul, a habit of mind. And with some things, you know, I think it differs from person to person, those habits can begin to develop very early in our lives. And uh, one of them uh, can be, as you put forward here, this desire for praise and, you know, may even arise for a number of different reasons, certainly from our ego, uh, but also I think maybe from a certain lack in early life too. Maybe we were criticized a lot or there was just nothing ever given. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, you know, those habits of mind can be deeply rooted. And so to be more and more conscious and develop that habit of virtue contrary to it is something that we really have to work on. And what, one of the things that the fathers say is to identify our prominent passion and to focus in upon it. And if it is this, you know, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing that I put my hand to that I don't seek some praise for, then uh, that, that would be the one within the context of spiritual direction, spiritual reading, your spiritual life as a whole that you would seek to address on a deeper and deeper level. And, you know, there's something medicinal, I think, uh, in the reading of the fathers, uh, because they often bring to the light these things, these truths within us, in order that we might develop that good kind of sensitivity of conscience and become more aware of those patterns of mind and habits of soul. But again, you know, not to, excuse me, not to let it draw us into despondency or despair, you know, but to see the truth and to ask for the grace to, to overcome it. Uh, Michael Hinckley said, writes, reminds me of the story of Alexander Magnus once offered a cup of water in a time of dryness, poured it out saying, too much for one, not enough for many. <laughs> yes, depends on how the, the course of that story goes. I suppose if he dies of thirst, it's one thing, but I understand, you know, too much for one, but not enough to satisfy the thirst of all those around, around, around him. And often it's true for us that we can be focused only on what satisfies us and not how that touches others, whether it removes something from them that is rightly theirs and should be shared with them. You know, the perfect gospel is what we read in the Eastern Rite this Sunday, which is the story of the uh, rich farmer uh, who's called a foal, the foolish, the parable of the foolish farmer, you know, where he has so much that he begins to worry, you know, what shall I do? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones in order to store my wealth. And, uh, and he's called a fool because that night he's going to die. And that he'll come before God with absolutely nothing because it never enters into his mind uh to share out of that wealth 
out of his abundance with others in their poverty. Walter writes, Father, why is it that it seems the church fathers wrote in such a way, I'm sorry, what happened here, in such a way that the question that my census, the way that question my census, uh, I can't see the whole part of it there. Fide, they make me feel like I've been mailing it in. <laughs> yeah, well, I, th I think because they are, presenting us with the gospel in an unvarnished fashion and even magnify parts of it and make it come alive for us. I think our, our um, familiarity often makes the words of the gospel as flat as the pages they're written on, whereas in the writings of the fathers and in these stories, all of a sudden they take flesh and in a very striking way. Uh, becomes sort of jarring, almost like a bucket of cold water at times thrown on us in order to uh, open our, our eyes or our ears that we might see and hear what we are meant to see and hear. And again, it's very easy for us to do exactly what you said, mail it in, that we feel that we are generous, that we're, you know, tithing a certain amount or or the, again, we're not committing any great grave sin, and yet we often will begin not or stop at that point in the sense of searching the soul and striving to enter by the narrow way, uh, where the the cross no longer becomes the standard for us, that we've created something within our own mind. Uh, that uh, becomes that standard by which we judge our actions rather than having it be the love of Christ. Uh, Suzanne writes, uh, let's see, no, Anthony wrote, perhaps ruined is too strong a word though. Uh, a beautiful thing uh, is still beautiful and who knows what good uh, it has been for another. Right. Uh, I see what you're saying there, Anthony. And, uh, you know, we can appreciate that which is good. And I often talk to people about this in, in the sense of uh, legitimate ambition, even in the sense of pursuing uh, the th these things that we love or uh, uh, gifts that God has given us and seeking to have them bear as much fruit as possible and taking a joy in that. Uh, without it being something that corrupts the mind or the heart or that we, and this is what will be discussed in the coming hypotheses, which is gratitude. That if we are thankful to God for what we receive, then these things cannot harm us, certainly, even if we are given greater praise than what we deserve. And so if we can offer gratitude to God, then that protects the heart. Uh, Walter writes, I apologize for leaving, but I have to start a Zoom group. Okay. Maureen writes, maybe they were not attached to anything in this world and had no need for natural things, only for the heavenly. Uh, if you're speaking of the monks there, that in, in large part, they did strip themselves of their need for worldly things. But uh, nonetheless, they could still see that having done that, uh, that 
you know, what was within the heart still shaped the way that they viewed themselves and the world around them, that they could find themselves clinging to a needle with as much fierceness as somebody would cling to a bag of gold, uh, that, you know, they could become petty or as ego-driven as anyone, even in the midst of, of the desert. And again, I think this is what makes their writing so powerful and penetrating, uh, because as they enter into this kind of laboratory of the desert, it really did shine a light on the subtlety of the movements of the mind and the heart and the nature of these attachments. And that it's sort of like peeling back the skin of an onion, you know, little by little, you, you see that there's more beneath it. And uh, this is what they seem to do so well. Uh, Michael writes, when we give thanks to others, it is also an act of charity. Others write, magnanimity is a gift we are given to excel in order uh, in orderly fashion. Okay. So, any other thoughts on this section before we move on? Okay. So, from the life of St. Arsenius. The great Arsenius so loathed the things of this world, considering them to be of no significance whatever, that he could not bear at all to look upon anything worldly. Therefore, out of opposition and antipathy toward the splendid raiment of his former life, which he wore when he was living in the palace, he used such cheap and wor worthless garments that he did not differ at all from a poor peasant who wears torn and rotten clothing. But St. Arsenius was very pleased by these poor garments, which were fit to be thrown away, and took pride in them, since he was more concerned about his inner life and wanted to adorn his soul rather than his body. So, you know, that e even though he sets aside the material prosperity that he once had, uh, that the clinging to uh, this kind of raiment, if you will, it's a different kind, it's spiritual, still existed. And so his struggle with the passion is on a, a spiritual level. And it's interesting, John of the Cross talks about this in his writings too, that we struggle on the passions on one level, and then after you know, we've overcome them, then we begin to struggle with them on a more spiritual level as well. And this would be the perfect example of it, that he had cast off the things of the world and attachment even despised them, but he was clinging to this other kind of spiritual raiment, garment uh, of being seen as, you know, poor and humble in the eyes of the world and in his own eyes, he took pride in it that he was humbling himself in this fashion in comparison to his previous life. And so there was more yet that needed to be purified there within his heart. These are always the surprising things in the, the writings because uh, again, how astute they are and how deep our attachments 
uh, can become within us. And why, why, even when our conscience does not bother us, can we see ourselves as without guilt or without sin? Uh, because our attachments can, again, like Arsenius's, run very deep. Any comments? Okay. Letter C from the Drontcon. A brother asked an elder, is it good to have two tunics? Keep two tunics, he replied the elder, and do not acquire evil which stains the body and soul. The soul has no need of evil, but the body does need covering. If we have what is indispensable and necessary, let us be content with that, as the apostle says. So, you know, having two tunics is not where the focus is needs to be, that there might be a reason for having two. And in order to remain covered, especially when one is cleaning the other or something along those lines. But what we are to guard against is evil. And so to protect the heart, again, from uh, seeking to, to go beyond what is necessary. And one might even say indispensable for us, that uh, we would always scrutinize that. And so it's fine to you know, ask that question, do I really need two? But if one does, don't become scrupulous about that, but still guard your heart uh, from the evil of attachment and avarice. So you, you see what he's saying there? Is it fairly clear? Okay. From Isaiah, Abba Isaiah. Take care that you do not allow your body to become unsightly from filth, lest you be overcome by vainglory. But if you are young, let it be completely unsightly, for this is a profit, uh, is your benefit, to your benefit. Do not desire anything belonging to your neighbor when you see it, whether it be a garment, a belt, or a monastic hat, and do not satisfy your desire by making something like it for yourself. Indeed, even if you own a book, do not embellish or adorn it, for this, too, can become a passion for you. The adornment of the body is the destruction of the soul. However, to look after these matters with the fear of God is a good thing. Philip Neri used to have an interesting thing about this, that, you know, poverty does not, does not equal to filth. That, you know, that his men, and he, he embraced a life of poverty. You know, he had nothing, and uh, especially as a layman, but even after becoming a priest, it was true. Uh, and uh, but one of his things was that, you know, you wouldn't allow yourself to become filthy. You, you know, you don't equate the poverty with filth, that you clean yourself up. You don't draw attention, unnecessary attention to yourself. The one modification that we see here among the monks' writings is that for the young, then go ahead and do it because they still need to uproot that attachment to how people are seeing them, of wanting to be seen, you know, as attractive. And uh, and so 
you know, for the monks, that would be one reason why one would hold, allow oneself to go down that path. But Philip Neri and his, his men, you know, lived in the city and lived in Rome and uh, at, at the time. And so I think Philip was astute enough that he, he could see that, you know, it would draw attention to them if, if they did this, you know, if they, if they did not keep themselves well-kept and, and washed. So, from Abba Isaac, love the poor garments in your possession so that you may annihilate the desires that grow in you, such as haughtiness. For he who loves elegance cannot acquire humble thoughts, since the heart mirrors what is visible on the outside. So, love your poor garments, you know, to develop a love for things that people that people typically do not love. And uh, sort of like we've talked about, the, to love fasting. And, uh, you know, we love it because of what it brings to us, which is, you know, a greater hunger for the Lord uh, and to see within our hunger and desires, our desire for him. But here, you know, that, it becomes a reminder of our true poverty. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard thing, um, you know, because certain things can be attractive, even like religious robes, you know, a cassock. And you have this thought, well, maybe the next one I should get. Philip would never let them have the fringe on the cincture and things like that or any kind of extra decoration, but you can think, well, maybe the next one I get, I'll get one with a collar that has the extra, uh, I forget what it's called, detail stitching, you know, and piping, yeah. and uh, uh, in order that it might look better. And, uh, and while black hides everything, most everything, uh, when a dog jumps on you, you have big, you know, muddy dog prints. <laughs> <laughs> and the habit starts to look a little ratty. And, uh, you know, when I first got the dogs, I was really sensitive to that, you know, but they're, they're sort of like having kids in, in a way. And, you know, when they jump on you with muddy paws and you think, oh my gosh, get off me. <laughs> you know, Look at what you did. Uh, and, uh, and after a while, not so much. And because you, you can see, well, okay, that's what living with dogs is. And you have to deal with it. And you have to clean more and clean your habit. And uh, But it frees you from something or it shows you just how attentive we can be to how we look and how others are going to perceive us. You know, if, we, if our sh shoes are scuffed up or a little muddy too, you know, they can be another thing as well and uh, uh it was the same thing as soon as i moved in here i bought a new pair of shoes but lo not long after that i got the dogs and as soon as i got the dogs i've to, i've had this new pair of shoes sitting up in my closet because i figure wh why put them on they're just going to be a mess in a in a short period of time and uh so you know i think this is what abba isaac is talking about that this external appearance reveals 
and the haughtiness that is often tied to it reveals an internal haughtiness that we, again, we want to be seen by others as, you know, well put together. And that, again, that can be true for priests, you know, perfectly coiffed hair and a perfectly trimmed beard and, you know, and want to look the, the part, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, uh, and so it's, this again, can be one of those more subtle, subtle things uh, that we have to be attentive to. You know, do we really need to get a new wardrobe or can we hold on to the things that we have, even though they're getting a little worn? In this culture, uh, Suzanne writes, dressing well is a good work. Yes, dress for success, uh, I think was the old phrase. And, you know, uh, uh, and I remember my old barber used to have look sharp, be sharp, you know, a little sign in his uh, barbershop and uh, which sort of says the same thing uh, that, you know, we can really culturally uh, be tied to this. And some cultures manifest it in these strange ways. You know, the uh, stockings like the Spaniards would wear, uh, you know, those high stockings and the short leg leggings, you know, and it looks weird to us now. We think, gosh, what kind of culture sort of fostered that where the, the men wore these you know, high stockings. And uh, part of it was this vanity because the size of your calf was a sign of virility. And it was kind of a machismo. And uh, so they would wear these tight stockings in, in order that they could be seen in this way. And, you know, one of the, I read this uh, sort of analytic biography of St. Ignatius of Loyola written by, uh, a Jesuit analyst, psychoanalyst, and he talks about uh, uh, Ignatius's wound from battle. And if you if you remember, his legs were shot out from underneath him by a cannonball, and one of them was pretty severely wounded. And they had to operate and uh, you know try to put his leg back together. And it, it was successful, but it left an unsightly bulge on the front of his shin on the front of his leg so in those high stockings his legs looked awful to him and the history of it is that ignatius underwent a second surgery without anesthesia to shave the bone you know the calcium buildup to shave the bone down in order that his leg would be have the normal shape and you think, what kind of, <laughs> you know, self-image must drive that, you know, uh, how powerful that culture was and this desire, uh, you know, and this was a military man too. It seems almost sort of funny, uh, but uh, how powerful that was that he would be willing to undergo that kind of pain. And that still exists in our day. I mean, people get you know, facial reconstruction and all kinds of stuff, plastic surgery and where there's long healing from it. But, you know, this struggle goes way, way back. And even, you know, St. Ignatius, before he was St. Ignatius, had this kind of vanity that he was driven, driven by as well. 
So I always love that story. It's t t terrifying to think about, uh, you know, but uh, it's really insightful. Okay, letter F from the Gerontcon. Abba Isaac said to the brethren, our fathers and Abba Pambo used to wear much patched old garments made of palm fibers. You now wear costly clothing. Get away from here. You have ruined this place. When he was about to go to the harvest, he said to them, I'm no longer giving you instructions since you do not keep them. So, you know, away for a period of time and, you know, comes to the monastery and sees them being dressed in, you know, costly clothing and uh, where you know, in the past, very much like, you know, uh, St. Paul the Hermit, you know, they would dress in palm branches that they would fashion into clothes for themselves, the simplest uh, of dress and in the desert. And, you know, here he finds the monks, you know, wearing not only something, uh, you know, a little bit more comfortable, but very costly at that too. And so he says, you know, he rebukes them in the sharpest way. Uh, you know, I can't give instruction when what you've embraced is already blind, already blinds you and deafens you to the truth. The same elder said, Abba Pambo used to say that a monk should wear a garment of such a kind that if he were to throw it out of his cell and leave it for three days, nobody would take it on account of its shabbiness. <laughs> uh boy so <laughs> i have some work to do there wear this habit a little bit longer uh before i could throw it out for three days but uh, uh point well taken you know that uh again those who know tr true poverty not those who simply embrace it even for spiritual reasons those who have no true poverty, have no choice. That's the reality for them. And, and so don't think that you are free, you know, from that attachment while you cling to something that is much different. So letter G from St. Ephraim, the Syrian. He who adorns himself in fine raiment harms his soul. For extravagance in clothing brings disgrace to the soul of a monk, since it produces pride in the soul. Frugality in clothing is what benefits and commends a monk. Be concerned, O monk, with inner labor, and do not decorate walls which are of no help to you. For a beautiful cell does not endow a monk with patience. Let us seek what is absolutely necessary. Superfluous things that cause us distraction are harmful and pernicious. So frugality you know, in clothing, but also even in the adornment of one's room. And this is a hard thing, you know, it's, and he's, he's right. You know, you can have your walls covered with icons and but it does not mean that you have patience within your heart and you know you can gaze upon them they can be beautiful in your eyes and they can create 
you know, pious feelings, but do they bring us to conversion of heart, to repentance? And do we really seek the intercession of the saints and love the saints and love and seek to emulate the saints uh, that are present in them? And if not, then what value do they have to us other than to begin to, to feed this kind of love for the things of the world? Anything about this hypothesis? Dun, da, da, da. Here we come to the final hypothesis of the, of the book. Uh, Anthony writes, we live in a society without these reminders and we are pagans. Yeah, in, in many ways, I think it can be a fair assessment, you know, that to, when you begin to look at the gospel, again, that shines through these writings, uh, that it is piercing to the heart uh, in the sense of, you know, what kind of life are we living? And, you know, uh, there's a Orthodox monk named Sarah from Rose who passed away, I think, in the late 20th century. And uh, in some ways, some of his writings are prophetic that he could see this emerging, a kind of new barbarism, you know, both on a philosophical level that, you know, we are moved by this kind of nihilism that, you know, reality is what you determine for yourself. There is no truth. And uh, and we can sink into a similar kind of, you know, view of reality and uh, into this kind of new barbarism where we aren't really being guided by the faith any longer, but what we want, what we want to believe, what we see is valuable, and that our religiosity, again, becomes almost like a commodity. It's part of that reality within which we live our lives, but not maybe something that really shapes our, our hearts. Uh, need to drop Santa note all. <laughs> uh, actually, some of those, those songs about Santa Claus are pretty good. I think we've moved away from them. You, you better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. You know, Santa Claus is coming to town. That there was this sort of call to introspection. And maybe not everybody would agree with that being a good thing. <laughs> maybe it puts too much anxiety in kids' hearts. But on, on one level, you know, it was sort of emphasizing this seeking to be good. And uh, we're... You know, we have th things accessible to us with so much abundance that one wonders if Christmas is really, you know, that that impactful in the sense of receiving a gift and the joy that often would come to children uh, when they typically had nothing. You know, you see these videos of kids now bursting in tears when it's not the particular gift that they wanted and, you know, throwing a, a fit. Uh, and so we've lost sight of some important things there, but let's not dwell on that. Let's move on to our final hypothesis that we should not do anything to gratify ourselves or do anything out of passionate craving. Uh, and this can include a kind of willfulness 
in our pursuit of things for ourselves or even that which in our mind seems good to us or a path that we would think is good. And this is, uh, this is a hard one in that regard. From the life of Pacomius, St. Pacomius the Great built a church in one of his monasteries and around it he erected a portico with beautiful pillars and bricks. When he had completed it, he was pleased by the work that he had constructed so beautifully. Reflecting, however, that he ought not to marvel at the work of his hands or take delight in the artistry of things that he himself made. He, while the building was still new, took ropes, bound the pillars with them, and ordered the brothers to pull them with all their might until the pillars became bent and unsightly. Thereupon he began to speak and said, You too, my brethren, should not labor to embellish the works of your hands overmuch, but it's preferable for you to pray that by the grace of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, your works will remain impregnable to ambition and vainglory, and that your mind may not falter through praise of your skill and become a prey to the devil, for many are the wiles of the devil. So there can be so many things that are done, even in the name of religion and the building of things, uh, embellishing of things that have more to do with us than they do with Christ. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't know what would be the right word for it, uh, one who's against beautiful, you know, things that are beautiful. Uh, but I understand what Pacomius is saying here, that a lot of effort but ego can go into building. And, you know, priests can be great builders. And we've talked about this before. And a lot of that can be simply sublimation. You know, the sublimation of energy that is not being directed otherwise or other places. And, uh, and there can be great ego in it. You know, building beautiful things, but not necessarily for the greater glory of God. You know, but because we think we need the bigger is better. And or, or the more ornate is the better thing. And we lose sight that, again, everything falls into dust. And what is most important is the human heart. And we might not be given giving even scant attention to our hearts or the hearts of the faithful within the church. And yet spending loads of money and time on things uh, that really bear no fruit spiritually whatsoever. And that can be uh, tied to anything as like a bit from a building to a flyer for an event. You know, I'm very particular about that. You know, something has to look, you know, exceptional. And I can be very picky. Uh, you can ask Ren about this, you know, and uh, and it's typically something that's, you know, after it's done, it's thrown in the garbage. Or, you know, one does it, you know, make use of it again, or maybe at a later date, but nonetheless, it can be driven by this same kind of thought, you know, perfection, nothing can be wrong with it, because if it is, somebody will see the flaw in it and will be diminished. From St. Barsanupius, a brother asked an elder, if an object comes my way, and I use it in my service as the monastery steward, 
but I notice that I am forming an attachment to it. Is it perhaps a passion for me when I take it to use it? The elder replied, if you use this object and you undergo warfare from the thought of attachment to it, say to the thought, I need to object in order to fulfill my obedience. I'm sorry, I need this object in order to fulfill my obedience. Why, therefore, are you trying to instill in me a desire to take it? And if the passion ceases to act in you, take the object. But if it does not stop, then if the needs of the task can easily be satisfied by means of another implement, do your work with the other object and fight against your passion. If, however, this is not possible, then use this object and reproach yourself. If it were not necessary, you should say, I would not have to take it because I am overcome by my attachment to it. So it's an interesting thing. You know, there can be these implements, again, that may seem to make our jobs easier or, you know, some sort of tool, but that we think that we have to have. And the same thing could happen in a monastery. Oh, you know, Abba, we need to buy this so that we can produce this and we can do it in, you know, more quickly and efficiently or make it more beautiful. And the real question is why? And, you know, is that more about attachment? Can we do these same things with other implements or maybe that are harder to use or take more time uh, without fulfilling some, you know, again, desire for efficiency or just to have something new, you know, that seem, seems to accomplish something with, in a way that is going to be exciting to ourselves and others. Technology is a big thing in this regard. Uh, you know, again, having the best or the newest thing because of what it's going to produce. You know, it can be very, again, a very hard thing to overcome. My mother used to tell me, Louise, if you do something, do it uh, well, as if you are doing it for God. I try, right, you know, to shift that focus, both to gratitude, but also that one is not simply focused upon the self, but upon God in the very act of doing something. Uh, this is true of preaching as well. You know, not to be focused upon yourself, but on the but on the word and the congregation. This is multi a multifaceted issue. Communism deliberately destroys beauty, and Christendom has beautified every human art form. I believe that beauty is absolutely necessary for public order. Yes, uh, but most of all, the beauty of of love of the human heart. Uh, it's been said that Christ is the most beautiful of human beings because we see in him this capacity that God has given to us to love. And uh, this is what we are to emulate and desire the most. And often our sin can bring a kind of disorder where rather this love of the beautiful uh, becomes an end in itself rather than uh, a reflection of our love of the beautiful in the sense of our love of Christ. And uh, that leads us to be attentive to the human heart. And uh, so I agree with you that, you know, that there, you know, Christianity has understood that very well, 
that beauty can elevate the mind, can lead us to a kind of transcendence. But we can also get caught in a kind of uh, not asceticism, but asceticism, you know, that we are, you know, caught up in this love of the beauty where it is an end in itself, you know, that it's satisfying the senses and that is as far as it takes us. It doesn't make us or draw us closer to God. Let's see. Okay. And one final paragraph. The brother then asked, if someone offers me something which I need, and I see that my heart has a passionate desire to accept it, what should I do? Should I take it with pleasure since I need it, or should I decline it on account of my attachment to it? The elder answered, you should have the same attitude toward this that you have towards food. You know that we need daily nourishment and that we are uh, that we are prevented from taking it for mere pleasure. But if we receive it for receive our vital sustenance, thanking God who has given it to us and we condemn ourselves as unworthy of this gift, then God blesses and sanctifies it. Hence, if you need something and all goes well, thank God who follows your work and condemn yourself as unworthy, then God will banish the feeling of attachment from you, for with God all things are possible. If, however, you are not going to use this object for your needs, then do not accept it, for it will be an occasion of covetousness. So again, our minds are drawn back to the, the scriptures. Uh, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we should do. And uh, in a similar way, it's being used here that if we receive something and we have this concern about attachment, we first thank God, you know, from whom all good things come. Uh, but then we acknowledge our unworthiness, that it is gift. And it's not because it's been something that's earned. And this is where, again, we train the heart not uh, to uh, attribute uh, our actions to our own goodness, but rather to the grace of God. All things begin and end with God. All is grace. And the quicker we see and understand that, the better. And so even how we make use of these simple things, uh, like eating, you know, saying the blessing should not be a formality for us or something that we do quickly or cross ourselves quickly or don't do because we are embarrassed that we're in a restaurant or something along those lines that uh, you know uh, there for monks there's always this connection between the chapel and the refractory and often even the movement from one to the other is reflective of that reality one goes from being nourished in prayer or from the holy eucharist to the refractory to be nourished in body, to take one's sustenance. And so often that movement is done in silence. And then uh, certainly the meal begins with a blessing, but also is uh, uh, often tied to a kind of spiritual nourishment again, that readings are often done in monasteries during the meal, the gospel or reading from the life of a saint or the rule. So that uh, again, 
this becomes sort of etched within the mind and the heart very deeply, that what we are receiving, uh, we are to receive in a contemplative kind of fashion, that we are aware of who we are, from whom the gifts come, and that we are we show gratitude for them. So a good way uh, to conclude our 400 and some pages of this first volume, Sean writes, I need it and I'm unworthy. That's an interesting take on things, humility, right? That even when we need something, the attitudes still should be of humble gratitude when it is given. The very powerful thoughts. Any final comments? On the yeah. whole first volume, any comments or, or questions on the whole first volume? Um, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, you know what I was thinking? I've been doing some movie, but it's a scene in the movie. Um, you know, in Schindler's List, when uh, he's standing on that subway and he's having to say goodbye because they're the Jews are free. Well, he stands here, he's weeping, he's saying, I could have sold this and I got more people. I, he's going through all these things, and I was thinking. I always thought that scene, I think, I wonder if that's going to be like when we realize all the things that were, it's a very uh, vivid scene of him, like looking at the ring. I could have sold this. I could have saved more people. I always think of that as how his possessions meant nothing. And then, you know, at the end of his life, he had no success. You know, it's like that was almost like he was just born for that. And I always think, oh, God, nothing meant anything. He kept saying my car, my ring, I, I could have done more, you know. Yeah. It's we kind often, of like we're all going to hit there one day. Right. Well, we often lose sight of that which is most valuable. You know, we don't see it in the other uh, or in God or in our soul, the state yeah. of our soul. And that being the most precious thing as well that we would pursue. So all, all of this is deeply illuminating. And so I hope over the course of the years you hold on to the volumes and Oh, yes. Back over them, and then maybe we'll come back around to do the Evergatinos again. Why don't we uh, Thank you. close, as always, with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from you. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.